0: listen to what our mind is telling us versus what our emotions are telling us because those are two very different things. Everyone has two voices in their head. Uh, It's not just one. And it's not like the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other. It's a logical, intelligent side and then there's the emotional, sometimes irrational side. Uh, Sometimes the emotional side tells you what you need to hear. Like for me, when I decided I was going to uh, not go to law school, my logical side was telling me like, You should go be a lawyer. Like, that's success. Like, that's what you should do. But the emotional side told me something different. Today, sometimes when I freak out, it's the emotional side that's freaking out saying, like, you should feel scared right now. Like, your business, like, the sales this month weren't as good as last month. But my logical side is telling me, that's not true. Like, everything's going to be fine. These are the numbers. These are what you're doing about it. And this is what happened last month. So, you know, you're going to be a good. So you need to sit down and just hear what both sides are saying. And, and then it's up to you to determine like what you're going to do about that. But that's like my daily ritual, really, is doing something like that. Because it allows me to not let my emotional side or allow my logical side to control my life. Because sometimes one of those voices is gonna be stronger than the other.
1: Reboots Rough Cut, episode three, features Jake Hare a tech entrepreneur and dad who almost failed at his business because he was trying to build a product the way others told him was the right way. And when Jake and his wife decided to make one last-ditch effort at success, they started going with their gut, life, and a business got better fast.
2: Hey there, you're dialed into Reboots, Featuring stories about people who have been forced to start over, in life or in business. All walks of life, anonymous or named, high profile or low down. Stories with heart, soul, and grit. Because knowing and sharing our stories is essential for living a life of joy, experiencing healthy relationships, and impacting the world around us in a positive way. Here's your host, Tracy Winchell.
1: Hey, Jake, thanks for inviting us into your life. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: I knew the minute that I read this that I just had to have you as a guest that you have an important story to share. Growing up, and this is you, growing up, I thought success was always out of reach and meant for people better than me. After a long, hard journey, I created a company that now helps others reach their idea of success. Often, that's in the form of helping them build and grow a successful startup. And then you said, every founder has a story, and it's up to us to make our story whatever we want it to be. Wow.
0: Yeah. I mean, it took me uh, a few revisions to make that email good. It's hard to convey so much in such a short amount of space. Um, And I think as writers, as bloggers, as entrepreneurs, um, we can get caught up in the amount of words we're saying without putting enough meaning behind it. But yeah, I mean, I wholeheartedly believe that. I think each one of us has complete control over our destiny, over our life, over our family's lives, the people closest to us, and it's up to us to make it whatever we want it to be.
1: And that is largely what reboots is all about. I realized a year and a half or so ago that we all have failures. We all have moments where we have to start over again. I've had several guests say that life for them is a constant reboot. Mm -hmm. So What is your story? Just what do you do now to help other people live their stories? And how did you get here?
0: Yeah, I mean, I can definitely relate to the rest of your guests with having a lot of reboots. I mean, I've probably had three or four. And I I know we're going to get into a lot of the different ones on here. I'll start from the beginning. So I grew up in Southern California to really poor, a really poor family. My, My mom, she did drugs. My dad was an alcoholic. You know, I changed schools every year because the court would change custody every year. And it was a really frustrating thing for me and my little sister. But I don't think we were frustrated because we, because of the way we were living to us, that was just normal everyday life. And I didn't realize anything was wrong until I got into high school. Um, When I got into high school, my dad lost his job. My mom, nobody knew where she was really. And we Lost our house, you know, lost everything, and we were just living on the street. Um, we were homeless for about a year. We were living out of my dad's ninety-six Ford Contour, this little tiny green car. <laughs> and uh, it, we would, what we would do is we would, he'd drop us off at school really early, um, before anyone got there. So you know, I spent two hours at school alone, and then he'd pick us up after school, after everyone was gone. And we drive around for an hour. And the reason we did that is because he still had the key to the place he used to work. And so we used to, after everyone was gone from the warehouse that he used to at, work at, We used to sneak in, and you know, wash ourselves in the bathroom at the, um, you know, in the sink. And there was no shower, so we were just like washing ourselves in the sink. And then we'd sleep in the car as the car was pulled into the warehouse. So it was around that time I started realizing like this is not how life is supposed to be. Um, there has to be something better than, than this. And from that moment, I I feel like that's my first like reboot was realizing that this life that my family was living before me, because you know, it wasn't just my mom and dad who were poor. They they had generations of, um, living a low income lifestyle and just having that be a mentality that kind of sat in, uh, and that was just a normal thing. And for me, I didn't want that to be what my life was. So, you know, I, I decided to make conscious decisions to move on from that. So, when I was 16 to 18, I worked my butt off in school, worked my butt off playing sports. I just focused all my energy and attention to the thing I could actually control, uh, which was, you know, what happened when between the time my dad dropped me off and the time he picked me up. And so I worked really hard uh, during that time to get myself into college. I was the first family member to go to college have a ton of student loans to show for it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I spent four years in college thinking I wanted to go to law school. And this is gonna lead it to the next reboot too. When I was a kid, I think this happens to a lot of really poor kids. You see, your definition of success is what other people put on you. And so for me, my definition of success was what I saw on TV because I didn't have any real role models to, to go after. So it was doctors on ER or it was lawyers on private practice, or it was NFL players in the NFL or basketball players. And so When I thought of success, that's what I thought success was, was those things. And so I didn't want to be a doctor because I, I don't like the sight of blood. Uh, I, I wasn't big <laughs> or strong enough to be a professional athlete. And so my goal was, okay, I'm going to be a lawyer. And so I worked really hard in college to go to law school. And during that time, I met my wife. We met our, each other the First day of college, it was crazy. I went to college thinking I was going to do what every guy thinks they're going to do, and do what guys do in college. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't have to. I don't think I have to say anymore for anyone listening. Uh, and uh, you know, that didn't happen. We, you know, first time I saw her, I fell in love with her, and that was it. So, um, you know, we are going on ten years married now. But I worked really hard during uh, school to to go to law school, and about six months before. I was actually supposed to go to law school. I got, I took the LSAT. I, t- I did everything you're supposed to do to go to law school. I got accepted to a few law schools like Duke and Columbia and some others. And then I realized, how am I going to pay for all this? <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't have like a trust fund to take money out of. I was already in, a, you know, a decent amount of debt from my student loans, and my wife was pregnant with our first son, who was going to be born about three months after I graduated from college. And I started getting scared because I started thinking you know, the more and more I stay on this path, the more and more I'm going to have to claw myself out of it. And so instead of the mindset of, well, I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to go get a job. I decided to do what I think people who have like some sort of mental toughness do. And you don't think about, oh, there's a hurdle. I'm not going to do it. You think, how am I going to get around that hurdle? And so the way I decided to get around that hurdle was, okay, well, who can pay for law school for me? And if I can't pay for myself, someone, something out there has to be able to do it. And so, I decided to join the U.S. Army. Uh, this was back in uh, 2010, and I enlisted. And I was in the army for three and a half, four years. I, I'd say like that transition from thinking I was going to law school to joining the army was like my second reboot, because that was a huge lifestyle change. I mean, we went from thinking you know, I was going to be at home with the family and going to school and my wife was going to work. And like, we were going to take care of our our first son together to, I mean, by like, I'm going to be gone for, first of all, I'm going to be gone for the first year because I'm in training. And then second of all, I'm going to be in training or deployed for the next three to four years. And so it was a huge hurdle, not only that I, in our lifestyle, but also to our marriage and to the relationship with my kids. And if there's one thing that I regret about that time, it has nothing to do with the choice I made to, to do what I did. It's about that it took time away from really valuable time with my wife and especially with my son, who was you know a year old during that time. But anyway, spent four years in the military. I completely hated it. Uh, <laughs> the best thing about the Army was the camaraderie. But the worst thing about the Army, and for any entrepreneurs uh, that are listening to this, you obviously know that we're not really good with authority. <laughs> we, we hate when people tell us what to do. We always want to fix things. And when you're in a bureaucracy at the level of the U.S. Army and you're not a, a general who's had 30 years in service, like nobody wants to hear what the stupid specialist has to say about, like, why are we parking the cars this way? We should do it this way. Or like, why are we doing training like this? We should do it like this. Nobody wants to hear that. And I, the whole time I was in the Army, I always lived on this like borderline of like, being a really good soldier and like being the guy that everyone hates. And, and I think everyone kind of knows what that is. It's kind of like the kid in, when you're in high school, there's that kid that's like he aces every test. He's super smart. He does everything he needs to do. But like he always has these really smart aleck remarks to the teacher. And, and, but he's able to get away with it just because like he's doing everything else he's supposed to do. So they don't want to really punish him. Like that's basically what I did when I was the army. I just <laughs> always lived on that, that borderline between like getting disciplined and then like pinning uh like awards on me and stuff. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) it was a really interesting time and I learned a lot during during that about authority and and stuff. But during that time in the army, that's when I started learning more about entrepreneurship. And I, I feel like I'd always been an entrepreneur when I was a kid. I didn't have money for lunch, I was poor. So I used to sell my artwork and stuff to other kids to make lunch money. Or I remember when I made some lunch money or traded Pokemon cards to make money or whatever, I would use that money and bet my friends on Monday night football games. And I was terrible at it. I remember one se- football season when I think I was in like 4th or 5th grade, every Monday night football game I lost. <laughs> so, <laughs> I wasn't necessarily the best gambler, but I always did stuff to hustle, you know, and I think when I was young and even when I was in high school and college there was always things that I was trying to do, but I never really thought about it as entrepreneurship. I just thought about it as I just want to make some money. Like, I, I don't know what that means. I just, I need to eat or I need to feed my family or I need to do whatever. And I didn't think about it that way. But when I was in the army, uh, I was an intelligence analyst. So I learned all about tech, cybersecurity, all this stuff. And and when you work in tech, even if it's for a big company, it's really hard not to get involved in entrepreneurship stuff because people in the community or they you know, different meetups and stuff like that are going to want to talk to you about tech because there's, there's like two halves of the tech sector. There's the people that are the non-technical and there's people that are the technical. Everyone plays in that technical space, but there's like this divide down the middle. And so when you have any sort of technical expertise, the people who are non-technical definitely want to learn from you and hear what you have to say and all this. And so when I was in the army, that started happening initially uh, to the point where I had a mentor when I was about to leave the army and I was going to go to law school. He told me, you know, you can make just as much money working in tech and, and you don't have to go to four years of law school. And I don't know why, but like the the light bulb went off and I thought to myself, like, why do I want to go to law school? Like, am I trying to go to law school because I want to be a lawyer or am I trying to go to law school because of the prestige it's going to give me or the money it's going to bring me or the social status it's going to have? And I realized at that point that those were the wrong reasons to go to law school they were the right reasons to lead me to that point in my life. And I'm happy that I had that internal desire and mental toughness to stick to that plan and stick to that goal long enough for me to find what I really was meant to do. But I I think every once in a while, especially when we have like reboot moments in our life, I think when those moments come, it's because for some reason you actually sit down and think to yourself what is going on, and why is it happening, and what am I going to do about it? I don't think people think about those things enough. Uh, I think we just kind of let life happen to us. Um, and I could have easily just said, "Yeah, okay, whatever." That's my goal is to go to law school. I'm going to go to law school. But I really sat down and, and talked to my family, talked to you know, talked to myself, not in a creepy way, uh, but talked <laughs> to myself, uh, talked to myself, and really just kind of laid out really clearly to myself the reasons why. My mind thought one way, but my heart felt something else. And, and once I did that, I mean, it changed everything. And that's when I decided, like, I, I need to go work in tech and be an entrepreneur. I don't need to go to law school to make myself feel successful.
1: Tell me something. Do you think that mental toughness and the self-awareness that you had to put together there, do they go together if you're mentally tough does that mean that you have to be self-aware or are those two separate things?
0: I don't think you need to be self-aware to be mentally tough. I know a lot of people who are mentally tough who aren't self-aware. And a lot of those people I met in the military and they're strong-willed, determined, but they're just they don't have a lot of self-awareness. They don't they don't like think to themselves like how is my life? What am I feeling? How are things going? Like am I happy? Are the people around me happy? But I don't think you can be self-aware without having mental toughness. Because I think it takes a lot for someone to really dig underneath the surface of themselves and really ask themselves really difficult questions. My entire life, uh, at that point, it was almost 10 years, had been completely around this idea of Jake is going to become a lawyer. And it wasn't just for me. At that point, it was my family. It was my friends. It was uh, my extended family. They all saw me as you know i'm so proud of jake he's gonna go to law school i'm so proud of jake he graduated college like he's on his way to to do that and i think you not only have to have the mental toughness after you realize and you're self-aware you not only have to have the mental toughness to have that conversation with yourself but you also have to have that mental toughness to change the things that aren't change the things that you've realized are wrong once you are start thinking to yourself like this is not what it's supposed to be because it was really hard to have those conversations with my wife, with my family. That hey, I'm not going to law school. I remember my mom was like really upset about it, because <laughs> uh, she really wrapped herself into this idea that I was going to be a lawyer. But moms do that. I mean, she, when I told her I wasn't going to go play professional football, or I, like I had that dream was over. Like I wasn't. I'm, I'm six foot and 185 pounds, and I, I can't <laughs> gain an. Ex, I can't even gain another pound on my body if I tried. And when I told her that she was really upset. And then when I told her I wasn't going to law school, she was really upset. But I think you have to have some mental toughness in order to get over not only the conversations that you should have with yourself, but also you're going to sometimes have to have really difficult conversations with the people around you. And I think that continues even today. Now it's, yes, it's my family that I have difficult conversations with, but it's also other people too. Like employees, pressure from society to do certain things, events that you think you should go to or the type of parent you think you should be. It's easy to get caught up in some of the things that society or other people tell you you're supposed to be doing. It takes a lot of self-awareness and then mental toughness to decide that those aren't the things you're going to do because that's not who you are.
1: Wow, Jake, that's kind of big because we do so often have a tough time in knowing our stories. We have a tough time separating our self-awareness and what we want and what we need and what we were made to do from what other people think we should do, either as a dad or an entrepreneur
0: or whatever.
1: Wow. That's kind of big, Jake.
0: Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it took a long time for me to realize, I think when, when that stuff was happening to me, I, I, I had an initial amount of self-awareness to understand that my heart was telling me to do something different than what my mind was telling me to do. But I I don't think I, I, even then, I think there's different layers of being self-aware. There's an initial, like, this doesn't feel right to me. And then there's a deeper level of, not only does this not feel right to me, but why doesn't this feel right to me? Like, what is my mind and my heart telling me? And what's the reason behind all that stuff? I mean, some people go and see therapists and psychologists for years and still have a hard time figuring out that answer. I think some of us, we have small moments in our life where we're lucky enough to find that out for ourselves. And that's when we need to take advantage of that.
1: Give me your definition real quick of mental toughness. We've, we've bandied that word around and you obviously have had a tough growing up period. Does that play a part in your ability to navigate treacherous waters? What is, I've asked you two questions here. Let me back up and try that again. What is mental toughness to you?
0: Mental toughness to me is having the mental and emotional fortitude to do things that you don't want to do. And I think mental toughness is on this scale where you can just be mentally tough by waking up at a time that you don't want to wake up, whether physically or mentally you don't want to wake up, or emotionally just don't want to wake up at that time. That's like on the lower end of the scale. And then you can have mental toughness that's all the way on the other end of the scale, which is I'm going to run into that burning building and save this person because like, that just needs to happen. And your body doesn't want you to do that, obviously, but you have the mental toughness and the willpower to go in and do something like that. And we see stories of that all the time. And we, we have this idea that mental toughness is, when we hear the word, it's a story like that all the way on the right side of the scale, which is like somebody running into a burning building, or maybe somebody doing something that's just incredibly emotionally challenging. But that, it doesn't always have to be that. It's, all, it's also on the left-hand side of the scale. Everyone can practice tiny amounts of mental toughness every single day. And just the same way that you go to the gym and you work out your, uh, your arms, your legs, you go running and you, you work out your lungs and all of these things that you do, you should be doing the same thing for your mind and for your mental toughness. Because every time you make a tiny decision, uh, it strengthens your ability to be stronger mentally. You know, an example I usually give people when I talk about something like this is it's a lot easier to say, well, I'm going to wake up early tomorrow. And instead of saying, I'm going to wake up early instead of waking up at seven, I want to wake up at five. Like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> like, yes. Uh, like, and that's, you're, you're over, that's when somebody over, overblows the idea of what mental toughness is. Like, oh, I need to be mentally tough. I need to go from this one thing and then leap this huge building to this other thing. Like, no, just instead of waking up at seven, wake up at 6.50. And, and then instead of waking up at 6.50, the next day, wake up at 6.40. Like, you don't have to take these giant leaps in order to be mentally tough. Like, being mentally tough is, consistently and constantly being able to make hard decisions and follow through with those hard decisions, even though your mind or body or, you know, emotionally, you don't want to do those things. That's
1: awesome. Okay. Let's pick back up to your being discharged from the army. What happened next?
0: Yeah. So I was honorably discharged from the military. Um, I had a job lined up about three months before I got out. So the last three months I was in the army was kind of like the Last semester of college, which which I was like, I don't care about anything that's happening right now, <laughs> and uh, it was like, you know, I had one foot out the door, and I was super excited to to get out and like be able to like flex my entrepreneurial muscle and have a career and do all these things, and I was really stoked about it because the grass is always greener on the other side, right? I mean, we, we can have that in every every everyday life, but once I got out in about the end middle to end of 2013, I got out of the army. And I started working at this job. It was a corporate job. It was for this big tech company out of Boston. So I was stationed in Tennessee when I was in the Army. So I was spending a week in Boston and then a week back in Tennessee at home, so working from home. And I did that for about a year. And I hated it. (laughs) I didn't hate it because of the travel. Uh, I hated it because I had just made something out of having this civilian job. I, I made more out of it than what it was. I I thought when I was in the army, like once I get this job, like I'm gonna be happy, and this is like a recurring theme in my life. Like, okay, this change that I'm making is going to make me happy, and then this next change is going to make me happy, and then this change is going to make me happy, and we can do that all the time, like every single day. When I started my business, it was all I want to do is get to ten thousand monthly recurring revenue. If I do that, like I'll be happy, I'll be good, I'll be satisfied, I won't feel anxious anymore, and that's just not true. Once I got to ten thousand, it was like. Oh, but but if I could just get to 30 I'll be happy and it's just like it, you can keep making those excuses to yourself but it's just not true we'll, we'll get into the business stuff later but so I got out got this corporate job and it was it was fine but it just there was something wrong I just wasn't really happy with the kind of work I was doing I wasn't happy that I didn't have the freedom to make certain decisions so you know I decided to leave that job. And go to a new one because I thought, well, maybe it's the job that's the problem. So I went, we, me and my family moved down in Charleston, South Carolina, which is where we live now and took a job at, at another software development company and worked there for about eight months. And again, I just wasn't happy. I mean, the place was voted like one of the best places to work in, in the state. Uh, we were growing really fast. I got paid. I was almost making six figures. I, I had probably a couple months away from getting a, a raise that would have made me at six figures and I was 26. Like. I would have been 26 years old making five or six times more than anyone in my family ever had wow. before. And I just, and when I say that a lot, it, it makes me feel ungrateful. But I, I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think what it has to do with, like, no amount of money is going to make you happy. And I wish I had learned that lesson back then. Like, back then, I wasn't self aware enough to realize that that was a problem. Uh, I just thought, like, oh, it's the job. Like, I just shouldn't be working. I need to go start. my my own company. And so that's what I did. I I worked there for about eight months. I decided to start my own development agency. So this was in 2015. I decided to start my company Launchpeer and me and my wife co-founded it together. So she quit her job at the same time as me. We were like those naive entrepreneurs who think, Oh, I put a website up and I, I, people have asked me about doing stuff like this before. And so, like, I'm going to quit my job and, like, we're going to get this project. And, like, we're going to be good to go. Like, people are just going to come to us. And, like, they go, <laughs> oh, man, that's not even close to what happened. We quit our jobs. We were both working from home. At that time, we had two two sons because our second son was born while I was in the military. And so we were, you know, trying to take care of our, our family and our finances on. We didn't have any savings or anything. I think we had, like, maybe $30,000 sitting in our bank account from selling a house that we had owned for a couple years after the housing market crashed. And we thought, okay, well, we just need it to last six months because, you know, if we can make it last six months, by then we'll have plenty of sales. And, man, that was that didn't happen. The first two years of running the company was terrible. My wife ended up having to go back to work uh, about six months after quitting our jobs. And, she, I mean, she had to go back and work retail. I mean, that was really hard for it was, I mean, I know it was hard for her, but it was also really hard for me because it was a really big hit on my manhood, I guess. Um, and in me and my family and the way I grew up, like the, the man is supposed to be the one that takes care of the home and for me to not even be able to feed my family or my kids or like be able to pay a mortgage. Like, I mean, during that two years, we probably missed the mortgage payment three or four times. Uh, not consecutively because I, I would always do this game where you like rob Peter to pay Paul. So i would like, oh, well, I'll miss the electric bill and the water bill. But th- that'll give me enough money to pay the mortgage. And like the next month, I'll I'll pay the mortgage. Uh, well, I'll pay the water and electric bill, but I'll, I'll pay the mortgage. This, you know, and I, I just like this game that you play. And we did that a lot. And it was really hard on my family because, you know, I remember t- there would be times coming home and it was like, oh, the electricity shut off again you know? Um, and I remember it was like the middle of summer. This is when I had like the last straw. I was like done. Uh, it was about a year and a half after we had quit our jobs. We came home. Uh, it was, you know, middle Tennessee, it gets really hot there. And, uh, cause we had moved back from Charleston to Tennessee cause we already owned a house there. So we were like, well, you know, let's not pay rent. Like let's just move back into the cheap mortgage that we had. And I remember going back home after taking the kids to the park and the electricity was shut off and, it, it was like 100 degrees outside in the house. It was even hotter, probably. And, you know, our kids were five and three or so. And uh, they didn't understand what was going on. Like they were just like, oh, are we, you know, are we gonna get the electricity turned back on? Or, you know, are we poor? Like those kind of questions. It's just like, man, that, like that really sucks. Like they don't really understand what's happening. But at the end of the day, they they, they shouldn't need to understand what's happening. All they know is like, we, we don't have any money, and you know the electricity's not on, and they can see that. Even though they're five and three, like they just kind of like have this feeling, just like I had that feeling when I was a kid and I was poor. Like, I, I didn't really know what was going on, but I kind of had a feeling that there was something wrong. And when I started matching up the what I felt when I was a kid to what my kids were feeling at that moment, I started getting really depressed. I mean, I was, I started drinking more, smoking you know, not exercising, never didn't shave, uh, like just didn't take care of myself. I I just walk lounge around the house and like, just, you know, I mean, I would get on sales calls and all that stuff, but like, I just wasn't really into it. And that's when I decided like, yeah, I just, I need to stop being selfish and go back to work. And at the same time that I made that decision, I got desperate (laughs) because I was like, well, you know, the first year and a half or two years of running the business, I started doing what I said you shouldn't do, which is I started doing what other people were telling me to do. And my business, instead of when I started it, Launchpeer was development for startups. That's what we wanted to do. But everyone kept telling me like, you're crazy. Startups don't have any money. They were telling me, well, if you, if you go after startups and you go after these other people, like you'll have a better chance of making money and blah. So like we were Launchpeer development for startups and healthcare companies and corporations and e-commerce and like, we had no message because everyone was making the message for me and you know we did that for a year and a half but when i got desperate and decided okay i'm gonna go back to work i did two things one i I created a profile on indeed and started applying to jobs (laughs) and uh uh, the second thing i did was i decided to just throw out everything we had for launch period the branding the messaging everything we were doing and build the business i I wanted to build from the beginning because i was desperate anyway i was like well if this thing's gonna go out it's gonna go out in the you know, flaming pile of glory. Uh, And, and uh, and so I was like, I'm just going to build it exactly the way I want to build it. And we'll just see what happens. So the same week I made all those changes to the website, to the messaging, to the, you know, the types of places that we were marketing and also was applying to jobs. And before I got a call back from any of the places I applied to our sales skyrocketed. Like we went from, Hey, yeah, I was, it felt weird at the time and kind of crazy. And I, I don't think it, I think it took me six months after that happened, uh, for me to like realize what had happened. That was the middle of, I think it was the middle of 2016 and it was like June, July. And at that time it was me and my wife and like a, you know, a couple of other people on our team barely, able, you know, making payroll, like I mean, not paying myself still and not paying my wife either. She was still having to work had a second job. And, uh, we went from that in about June, July of 2016 to the end of 2016. We were 18 people had an office. Uh, we went from making maybe three or 4,000, you know, it, it was fluctuated so much. It was hard to say, but like on average, about $5,000 a month to making, I think we got up to six figures a month, um, at the business level, uh, within that six months. It was just insane. Like, because during that time we not only hired all these people, we also moved from Tennessee to Charleston because we wanted our office to be in one place and we love Charleston. So we moved our office to Charleston, you know, moved our house to Charleston, moved the kids out of school, like all of these things. My wife quit her job and started working full time. All these things happened within that six months and I never really took the time to enjoy it. Things were just happening so quickly that, and, and this is one piece of advice I give to all the founders and stuff I work with. It's like when things are going, when something good happens, Sit down and enjoy it for a minute. Like, just live in it. Like, live in that moment because you're gonna have a lot of moments where things just don't go well. <laughs> and even after that six months, like we've had times where it's like, man, like this month in sale, of sales sucks. Or like, and we've had times where things have gone really well, and I haven't taken the time to like sit down and like enjoy the things that happen. Like, you can get kind of caught up. Like, we we close sales sometimes now, and um, sometimes when we close a sale, I don't sit down and enjoy it. Like I, I say like. Yeah, I pat my salesperson on the back. and be like, good job. They're like, that's it. But what I should do is be like, man, that is awesome. And the reason I should feel that way is because if I go back two years ago, I would have been like, that would have been like life changing, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And today, because we keep getting caught up in what's next, what's next, what's next, we don't keep anything in perspective. The things that we have today just aren't good enough. But if it was a year ago, it would have been, like life changing to have a sale, like a thirty or forty thousand dollar sale. But because it's just different now, we, we don't appreciate it as much. And I, I have to force myself constantly to remember to appreciate the things that we have. And luckily I've had some really tough life experiences that, that helps me ground myself in how lucky we are to to have what we have right now. Because if I if I didn't have those things or if I didn't learn from other people who've gone through those things I think it would be really difficult for me to get over what most entrepreneurs, I think, innately feel, which is that desire to just do the next thing um, or to make the next sale without enjoying the things that came before it.
1: Wow. This is a Reboots Rough Cuts episode. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Mikhail Kozenkov. I'm Tracy Wenchel, and this special series has been inspired by a a conversation with Mikhail and a group of fellow podcasters, during which I expressed frustration and concern about a backlog of beautiful stories that have been growing metaphorical dust on my hard drive, because I just hadn't gotten around to editing them and publishing them yet. Mikhail offered to help me clear the backlog and to crank out as many episodes as possible by the close of 2018, and this is one of those dozen interviews that will most certainly bring hope, to many listeners, maybe even you. Now, if you're a podcaster who is overwhelmed with post-production or maybe you're not sure how to edit your own podcast and you want a personal step-by-step walk through the editing and mixing process, or maybe you just want your podcast to sound the very best it can and not have to worry about the editing stage at all, you're gonna wanna get in touch with my friend Mikhail. Here's how you get in touch with him. It's podcastsoundfixer at gmail.com. We'll have a link in the show notes. Tell me about tell me a little bit about what development for startups includes with LaunchPeer.
0: Yeah, sure. So our process is is a little unusual. So, before I started the company, I worked at a couple other development agencies. And when I say we're a development agency, it's, you know, we build web applications, mobile applications. Uh, we do, we build websites. We provide some marketing guidance. Uh, basically, any piece of technology you need to build that's software related, not hardware like, you know, devices or anything, but like software related, uh, we do that. And when I started, in tech, after I left the army, that's what I was doing for these other really big companies. I mean, these were like, the first company I I worked at was thousands of people around the world. The second company I worked at, based in Charleston, was like 300 people, and there were 100 when I started. Within a year, they were 300 people. They were doing mostly government contracting, though. But the the way that they worked was very, um, we call it waterfall approach, which basically the only thing that means is you, plan out an entire project before you start working on it. It's very similar to how construction on houses are done. Like you get all the architectural blueprint prints. You lay everything out, you know exactly where the house is going to go. You know exactly what pieces of wood are going to be used. Like you, you know where the walls are going to be all of these things. Like you just know beforehand and then you build a house. Uh, and that's what we did. And that works really well for big companies. And at those companies that I was working at before, uh, we were working with big companies like Coca-Cola or Department of Defense and some of these others. And, and they like that approach because the last thing bureaucrats want is like to have to sit there and help make decisions while the product's being built. They'd rather be like, here's this 300-page document. Just build what it says to build in here and like, just go away. Uh, and so that's, that's what we did at those companies. That doesn't really work very well for startups. Startups, they need a an iterative approach where... We build, we, we scope out what they want to build right up front. So we tell them like, well, to build this, it's going to be, you know, let's just say $30,000. Well, we don't create the entire specifications document and scope all this stuff out and do these things up front because we know that for someone who's building a new startup, they don't really know what they want until they see it. And so what we do is we work on like these two-week cycles where for two weeks we build something, a portion of what we said we would build, and then we demonstrate it to the customer. And we say like, Is this this kind of what you were thinking you wanted when we sat down originally? And then they either say yes, or they say yes, but, and they want to change a couple of things, or they say no, let's do something different. And so our process allows for a lot more creativity and a lot more um, involvement by the founders than you'd see at some other place. Plus the fact that we've worked with now that we've been in business for about three years now, we've worked with about 300 startups around the world, so our entire team has basically seen it all from startups that uh, have one person teams and they're bootstrapping the whole thing all the way to like 20 person startups who have venture capital funding and can basically spend whatever they want and that allows us during the development process to provide marketing guidance guidance on what features they should and definitely what features they should not build we've had some really crazy ideas uh, of of things that people wanted to build just because they have money to do it and uh, it's our team's job to make sure that the person startup is successful like at the end of the day we don't have logos of huge companies sitting on our website most of the logos you see on our website are companies no one's ever heard of before and in order for us to be a credible company the only measurement of how successful we are and how successful we can make our customers is how successful have we made the customers that came before them and we want to make sure that these startups are able to be successful not just for you know a couple months after they leave And we built their product and they launched it and they're gone But for years after. And we have a really, really high, like triple the industry standard of success rate of the startups that come to us versus, you know, if somebody decided to like hire a freelancer and just build it on their own, because we're helping, we're not just developers, we're not just project managers, we're not just designers, we're like the person's co-founder. And when they work with us, they get, you know, not just one co-founder, but You know, probably like half a dozen co-founders, who's working on their project at any given time. But I mean, it's a great. I I tell people all the time, I have the best job in the world because I'm an entrepreneur and I get to work on a dozen startups at any given time and get paid to do it without taking on any of the risk that they have to. (laughs) Wow. Do
1: Do you think that because of your early entrepreneurial struggles? You have had an even higher success rate with Launch Peer because you sort of know what not to do and you can advise your clients that way or build out some of the failure?
0: Oh, definitely. I mean, one of the things that happens when entrepreneurs come to us and they want us to build something, because we're working with such early stage founders, is that there's always this level of hesitation and there's always this uncertainty that all of them have it sometimes it comes during the sales process sometimes it comes when we're 90 percent done with the project and, and they keep asking for more features but i know what what is really happening is they don't want more features to be built what, what's really happening is that they're just afraid like they're afraid to launch or before we start building anything they're afraid to start and my experience both with like my childhood and upbringing that lends some credibility to like, yeah, I'm not some guy that like just started this company, like, and had, you know, somebody handed me a bunch of money and I just went and started it. And so I have no idea what you're feeling right now. Like, no, I I have a wife and two kids and like, you know, I have people to take care of and I I don't come from privilege or anything. And I I don't hold anything against people that came from privilege. I think you can still have mental toughness and self awareness or everything. If you do that, obviously it's just in different ways. But when I talk to these customers, it allows me to be able to talk to them on a level that they can really relate to. And then in addition to that, like the level of uncertainty is something that I can relate to as well, because I'm very public and open about the fact that what happened to me the first two years of business about being depressed about, you know, having to go, you know, see a marriage counselor about, you know, having to go see a therapist about, you know, drinking and smoking and doing all these things, like basically wanting to quit. And I don't think enough people in the entrepreneur space talk enough about that stuff. I, I think, what happens is we flip open the pages of Forbes or we, you know, go look at TechCrunch, and we see these stories of these founders and all of their original stories just kind of glossed over. It's like, yeah, you had this idea and then they just fast forward a year and it's like, yeah, now they're making X number of dollars. like what, they never missed a bill. Like their credit score never took a hit. Like they never had to borrow money from their 401k. Like they never, like, where's the struggle? Like, why am I reading about this person? Like, why why should I care? Like, obviously, I can't relate to them because I never went through anything. It doesn't look like they ever went through anything difficult. And for the founders that come to us, they that's why that email that you read in the beginning is important. And that's why I include it. I, I've had so much positive responses from that email or from my story being on Medium or some of these other places from these founders who are like, I really appreciate you talking about it. And these aren't customers or prospects. I mean, these are just people writing and saying like, I really appreciate you talking about this. Uh, I had a customer of ours text me one day and said, I read the article, like, I had to borrow money from my 401K and we almost lost our house. But, like, we're not allowed to talk about that stuff because, like, when we go to events or when we go, you know, talk to people in business or we talk to investors, like, we're supposed to put on this, like, big smiling face and say, like, everything's amazing. You know, it's like, there's, like, this meme, this popular meme where this character's sitting in the middle of a room and, like, everything's on fire and he's just smiling. and saying, like, everything's fine. Like, that's exact. <laughs> That's exactly how we're supposed to act in startup culture. That's what you're supposed to say when you get interviewed on these podcasts. You're not supposed to talk about anything negative, none of the bad experiences. But the the problem is there's so many entrepreneurs who can relate to that. And there's so many entrepreneurs who give up because they think there's something wrong with them when they're struggling with stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so I the reason I'm so open about all these things is because I wish someone was more open about this stuff when I had first started out. Cause now that I'm more open with it, it's interesting to see how many people are actually dealing with the same stuff <laughs> and they just don't talk about it, which is, which is a really sad thing.
1: What do you tell your clients about failure, especially when their family is being affected?
0: The first thing I do is I, I, I relate to them. I, I say, like, look, this is my background. This is what happened with me. Uh, this is how, you know, I felt during that time. And this is why I shouldn't have felt that way. Uh, the next thing I do is I tell them that it's going to get better. The, the one thing that I, that I always harp on, and i have to do this to myself sometimes too, is what's the worst thing that could happen. And I don't mean like the logical worst thing that could happen, happen. I mean, what's the most reasonable worst thing that can happen. And, and back then, when I was depressed and I started drinking and I was thinking about quitting, I found out what the worst thing that, that could happen was. The worst thing that could have happened was I, I flipped the switch on our, our website. I, I have a business credit card I have to eventually pay off, but I go back to work and I get a job making eighty dollars to $100,000 a year. Okay. <laughs> like, how, ba- <laughs> how, how, how bad is that? Like, is that really that bad? And there's a lot of other people who aren't in situations like that where they're working at a job and they lose their job. Well, the worst thing for them is that they can't feed their family because they don't have a job. They have nowhere to go or they lose their house or something like that. So trying to keep it in, in that kind of perspective of sitting down as an entrepreneur and really thinking like to us, the worst thing that could possibly happen is the business shutting down. And yes, that's awful. Like that's terrible. I mean, I have 20 employees now. Uh, the last thing I want to do is have to let any of them go because we have a bad couple months of sales or something. And that would really suck. And in the moment we think that's the worst possible thing that could happen, but really like the worst possible thing that could happen is sales dry up. I have to lay off people one at a time. And yes, it doesn't feel good, but I have enough mental toughness to get over it. And slowly we pay down the debt and I go back to work and make money and feed my family. Like, but it's hard to get yourself out of the mindset in the moment to, to actually sit down and have the self-awareness to, to realize that the way that your emotions are driving the way you're thinking. And logically, I understand that the worst thing that can happen is, is just that. Or, you know, let's say we have a bad sales month. It's like, well, the worst thing that can happen is uh, we, you know, I don't know, can't pay this bill for another couple of weeks. Like, But your your emotions are telling you something different. Your emotions are telling you, like. Oh my god, this is the worst possible thing in the entire world, <laughs> you know. And I think as entrepreneurs and as business people or like whatever we're dealing with in our lives, we have to sit down sometimes and like calm our emotions down and force ourselves to do that, and the easiest way to do that is to look back at a time where things were worse. And for most of us there's going to be times in our life where things were worse. For me today, that's looking back at what happened the first year and a half I was in business, like there are times where we have slow sales months, and my wife actually had to remind me of this, um, where we were making six figures, you know, like $150,000 a month uh, the company was, and then we went down to like 120 the next month. And to me, it was like, oh my god, like is something wrong? Blah blah blah. And she had to remind me that, you, you know, like six months ago, we, we weren't even to, able to pay our mortgage. Like six months ago, the the entire business was making a third of what we're making per month today. It's like, what are you worrying about? Like, yes, there should be some level of concern. We should do something about it. But is it enough for you to feel like the entire world's going to end? Probably not. And that goes to having people around you in your life, whether it's a spouse or, you know, your coworkers or your co-founders or whoever, that can remind you of those things every once in a while. We all need people around us to kind of remind us of that stuff.
1: Do you have a daily habit or a practice that helps keep you... In this space that you're talking about where you understand the difference between emotions and truth?
0: Every day I spend time in the morning by myself in silence. So when I'm in Charleston, uh, that means taking a drive downtown and we have Charleston Harbor down here. And there's a really nice park uh, down by the water. And so I, I park, get out of the car and just go for a walk and try to listen to myself like what i'm thinking in my head like what am i thinking and why am i thinking and so i do that every day when i'm here in charleston when i'm not in charleston because we also uh like we split time between down in charleston and a farm that we have with our uh, my sister-in-law in north carolina when i'm up there i do the same thing i just go take a walk in the woods in the morning and i don't think it has to be like some scenic thing or anything like that, but I I think all of us need to take a few minutes each day, not to meditate, because when when my wife told me I should meditate or be mindful, like that was always really intimidating to me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, I'm not someone who's very good at at just sitting quietly. I'd much rather be doing something. Uh, For some people that's exercising, for some people that's taking a walk. Uh, For me, it's like going down and looking at the water or going in the woods and just looking at nature. But I think we all need to take some time every day, whether it's a minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever, and just listen to ourselves. Like listen to what we're feeling, listen to what we're thinking, listen to what our mind is telling us versus what our emotions are telling us because those are two very different things. Everyone has two voices in their head. Uh, it's not just one. Every, and it's not like the, the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other. It's a uh, logical, intelligent side and then there's the emotional, sometimes irrational side. Uh, sometimes the emotional side tells you what you need to hear. Like for me, when I decided I was going to uh, not go to law school, like it was most of the emotional side that told me that. My logical side was telling me like, you should go be a lawyer. Like that's, that's success. Like that's what you should do. But the emotional side told me something different. Uh, on today, sometimes when I freak out, it's the emotional side that's freaking out saying like, you should feel scared right now. Like your business, like the sales this month weren't as good as last month. But my logical side is telling me That's not true. Like everything's going to be fine. These are the numbers. These are what you're doing about it. And this is what happened last month. So, you know, you're going to be a good, so it's not like you need to listen to one side of the over over the other. It's that you need to sit down and just hear what both sides are saying. And and then it's up to you to determine like what you're going to do about that. But that's like my daily ritual really is doing something like that.
1: Sorry. I'm writing. That's amazing. (laughs) I've never heard it quite put that way that sometimes the emotion freaks out and sometimes the logic and you have to hear them both and know which one's telling you the truth. Cause they can both lie to you. My goodness.
0: Yeah. When I realized that, and I think I realized that there was two sides of me when I had that dilemma between law school and you know what I should do versus like what my emotions were telling me to do, keeping that at the forefront of my mind, uh, has really like been a huge change to my life because it allows me to not let my emotional side or allow my logical side to control my life. And so now, instead of letting one side or the other control my life based on which one has the stronger voice, because sometimes one of those voices is gonna be stronger than the other. By just sitting and listening to both, it, it's like, if you don't do that, it's kinda of like when you're mediating an argument between two people. If you you can't always just take the side of the person who's screaming the loudest, that's not the right thing to do. What you need to do is listen to both sides and say like, okay, well, what's, what's the argument behind the, the loudness? And it's the same thing inside of yourself. Like you're going to have the logical side and the emotional side and they're both going to be screaming at each other. Sometimes one's going to be screaming louder than the other. It's up to you to have the mental toughness to decide like, what am I going to do about all of this information that both sides are giving me? And once you can do that and once you start thinking about your life and and your decision making like that, it's going to make it so much easier to be able to move on and, you know, make some of these decisions that before would have been a lot more difficult to make.
1: Before I let you go, tell me about the Dadpreneur Club.
0: Yeah, so about about a month and a half ago, I had the idea that one of the things I was missing the first couple of years in business was a community. I mean, I would go to these events. Uh, I would, you know, talk to people, you know, in town or I would be on these forums that are for entrepreneurs. And it's like, I was saying before, which is like everybody puts on the smiling face and, uh, everyone has to act a certain way and not talk about any struggles. And so that was one problem I had with all of these things. And then the other problem I had is I think entrepreneurs, they, are designated into certain groups by other people and so like oh this is he's an early stage entrepreneur and oh he, he sold a company before and like oh he's venture backed it's like those aren't the groups that are going to build a community the, the groups that are going to build a community are going to be like oh this is a stay-at-home mom and she's an entrepreneur okay cool like she can talk and talk about actual problems with other stay-at-home moms who are also entrepreneurs uh these are stay-at-home dads that are entrepreneurs or these are you know, 20 somethings that wear hoodies and they're in college still and they're entrepreneurs. Like those kind of groups are going to have a lot more in common than the kind of groups that the entrepreneurship culture today like forces us into. So I decided that I was going to create a group, you know, like a group I would want when I started my business and a group that I still wish existed today. And so that's dadpreneur club. So basically dadpreneur club is a group for men who are trying to find balance between family and entrepreneurship and the struggles that we deal with as you know being men husbands fathers friends like all of those things play off each other and the struggles that we're dealing with are a lot different than the struggles you know a college student's facing that has no kids has no other relationships he can work 100 hours a week but we, we obviously can't do that and, and the same thing for moms there's a ton of mom groups out there where they collaborate and the problems they're dealing with are just so much different than any other problems anyone else is dealing with so Dadpreneur Club today. It's at dadpreneurclub.com. It's we're at over a thousand numbers now, and uh, you know if you're a dad, an entrepreneur, and even if you're not an entrepreneur yet, we've had a lot of people who are like, I'm thinking about entrepreneurship, but I don't know how this is going to impact my family. Like, there's a ton of people in there who are talking about issues that have to do with, you know, how do I, oh my marriage isn't going well right now because my business isn't going good. Like, what do I do about it? Or some people just want marketing advice and they'd rather get it from someone who understands that paying hundred dollars a month for something that has to do with marketing when you're a dad and have bills to pay and kids to feed is a lot different than paying hundred dollars a month for marketing when you're single. And you know, you can stop drinking $7 lattes for a month and be okay, you know? And so that's kind of what the group is about. And we're on, so we're, we have dadpreneurclub.com and then we also have a, a private Facebook group that people can join, but totally free. I just trying to build a community that I wish I had when I was starting my business.
1: Well, congratulations on getting to a thousand people. You've been working really
0: hard on that. Thanks. A uh,
1: couple of more questions and I'm going to let you go.
0: Awesome. Let's do it.
1: Do you have a specific tool, maybe a, a book that has helped you with these things that we've talked about, either mental toughness or self-awareness or, or any of these things?
0: Uh, yeah. So the daily, uh, I think it's called the daily stoic. Um, uh, I haven't seen the cover cause I always keep it folded open uh, but uh, The Daily Stoic, it's by Ryan Holiday, I believe, and basically what the book is, it's just 365 days of different things that you can meditate on, and I don't want to use the term meditation because everyone hates that word. Um, well, guys <laughs> at least hate that word, And but, but really, it's just uh, interesting things to spark thought in your mind about things that you should be thinking about, like uh, leadership or fatherhood or being a friend or you know being in a marriage or having a relationship or some of these things that you don't really often think about unless someone like triggers you to think about it. it it sparks a lot of creative conversations in your head that are important if you want to do what i said earlier which is like sit and listen to what you're what you're thinking and by having that where it's like broken out 365 days each day is like one page so it's you know hardly anything it allows me to like it forces me to like keep the book folded open on my uh, office desk and you know flip through it, read one one day at a time, and, and it's it's kind of funny like the analogy. It's like you're reading these things one day at a time, and you're just kind of taking all these problems and doing all these things like one day at a time too. So it's just a good reminder of doing that.
1: Yeah, I just finished uh, holidays. The obstacle is the way. A couple of oh, weeks yeah. ago, that I is. I haven't read that one yet. Oh, that's going to be an annual read.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I got to check that one.
1: Oh, you, you, you do. Last question. What advice or encouragement do you have for somebody who has a great idea, but is really struggling to make it work and is about to give up?
0: Don't. (laughs) Um, well, the first piece of advice I would give is, uh, to sit down and think like, why do you want to give up? And the answer for that is different for everyone. For me, it was, you know, I didn't want to see my kid live the life that I had to live when I was a kid. So that made me want to give up and start looking for a job. Luckily, I changed some stuff in my business and it got better, but things could be a lot different today. And so that's one thing, like sit and listen to why it is that you wanna quit. And after that, if you still want to quit, think about what you can do. If you're gonna quit anyway, think about what you can do that's gonna be a drastic change in the business that you have. I think for the first couple years I was running my business, I was playing it really safe. By listening to what other people said and reading all these books and podcasts and doing these things that people were telling me you're supposed to do, once you're ready to quit, it's cool to just make some really insane, crazy decisions. Like just do it. Like at that point, it's like, well, I'm going to give up anyway. And if if I hadn't felt that way, I probably wouldn't have pivoted the business the way I did, and I wouldn't be where I was today. So the the feeling and, and the wanting to quit can lead to some really awesome things if you make that decision to do it, and then. The last thing I would say is just because you quit on this one thing doesn't mean you should quit on everything. Uh, if I had quit this business, I would have started another one. And I would have started another one. I would only want start another one. Don't kid yourself into thinking you're not an entrepreneur. If you started something and it's something enough to the point where you're going to quit it, it, it means it's something. So that means you're probably going to start something else. I don't know any entrepreneurs that I've ever met who started something and then they quit and never did entrepreneurship again. So don't let the one failure impact you. I swear I had at least 10 different startups that I tried and failed before I started this company from like little SaaS products that I was trying to build to like low-end services I was trying to trying to do or even all the way back to when I was a kid selling artwork <laughs> or losing a ton of money on Monday Night Football games. Um, <laughs> you know, those are like little tiny things of entrepreneurship that I think led to where I am today. And if I didn't have all those failures and didn't quit a few times, I'd never be at where I was today. Also, like just one last thing real quick. I hate the negative connotation that comes with the word quit because I think sometimes it's okay to quit. Like When, when your business isn't going well or there's a job that's bad and it's affecting your family and it's impacting your life in a negative way, it's okay to quit. And don't let anyone else tell you it's not okay to quit. I hate these entrepreneurs that have these big stages and big podiums and they like don't quit like work 80 hours a week like work 100 hours a week you know quitters or losers and all this stuff it's like that is such bs like that is just not true uh, it's those people have quit a million times and a million different things like they're just doing it because they like to get a bunch of likes and stuff on instagram don't don't let the negative connotation that the entrepreneurship culture has to the word quitting impact you your confidence your Uh, emotions like your family it's okay to quit sometimes just make sure that when you do quit you're doing it for the right reasons you sit down and think like why am I doing this and if it's a good reason then do it but then don't let that stop you from starting something else
1: thanks for sharing your story with us Jake I really 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 appreciate it
0: yeah it's been awesome thanks very much
1: For more about LaunchPeer and Jake's favorite resources, check out RebootsPodcast.com, episode RR03. I'm Tracy Winchell, and we'll see you next time. Dale Valente.
2: We hope this episode has helped you in some way. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Maybe someone you care about might benefit from the Reboots Podcast. It's easy to share from our website, rebootspodcast.com. The Reboots Podcast is a production of Winchell Storyworks Incorporated, a company dedicated to helping businesses and individuals know, share, and live their stories in order to impact the world around us in a positive way and to
0: achieve financial freedom.